political time this evening as we seek the Lord's help. I would like us to turn to our first reading in the book of the prophet Malachi. Malachi and chapter 3. And can we read from verse 6 again? I'm reading from the Lord. For I am the Lord, I change not, and therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, says the Lord of hosts. And ye said, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, Wherein have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And so on. Will a man rob God? <coughs> it might be the inclination of our thinking that this is all about tithes and offerings. And in one sense, it's probably that is true. It is about tithes and offerings. But I think there's a principle lying behind all of this. And that is the true relationship that exists between God and the person that may be offering offerings or giving tithes. It's not what we give, it's how we give it. And you remember the Lord Jesus made a judgment upon certain kinds of people who thought themselves to be acceptable before God and would have an eternal blessing that they could just walk into heaven. And Jesus on that occasion, in that kind of catapult statement, said, he said, get away from me, depart from me, I never knew you. The principle that was governing these people, they thought to themselves that by fulfilling certain actions, they would be classified as acceptable before God. Very similar is it not the case to the man who was in the temple, the Pharisee in the temple, when he thought about himself and he thought about other people. He thought of himself of a higher caliber than anybody else, and that is the great danger of any one of us that we think to ourselves above what we ought to think. The Word of God is constantly reminding us of the importance of thinking soberly, thinking rightly about ourselves, not glossing up our lives, but acknowledging and accepting, as we were saying this morning, that Jesus sees us and he knows us where we are at, and we cannot hide anything from him. The Pharisee in the temple, he looked up to heaven and he made such an astounding claim upon himself. He said, I thank God, he said. Well, immediately you heard that. 
you'd be inclined to think to yourself, he was a good man, because he was putting God in the forefront. I thank God, he said. But the next statement he made, he fell flat on his face, spiritually speaking. I thank God, he said, I am not like other men are. And he even had the audacity to sit in judgment of that poor sinner that was standing so far off from him. And that poor sinner, all he could do was call upon God and say, God be merciful to be a sinner. But this, this Pharisee, I thank God I'm not like other men are, nor like this man. I fast twice in the year. I give tithes of all I possess. He does many things, like so many people think, that give them an entrance into glory. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end, as you know only well, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But that principle was not always functioning and neither could we confess and say that it's functioning with us. The principle is not functioning as it should, giving God the glory in everything, not just in word. That was an easy thing for a Pharisee to do, to express it in word, or even to express it in deed, by fulfilling as what he thought, by the sacrifices that he would offer, the tithes that he would give, all the presentation, which was so often a great show to the public. Well, Jesus, you remember, on one occasion, castigated them when he saw this woman who put in just a farthing or whatever it was that she put in to the treasury. And that was much more acceptable. Why? Because she gave it from the David from the depth of her heart. Now here what we have in Malachi's prophecy, there's two pictures being played out here in the, the, throughout the whole of the prophecy. And one we would not maybe want to labour on too much, but we can't ignore it. And the picture is a dark one of Israel's spiritual death on numerous occasions. Her history was one certainly of spiritual death in so many ways. And God is coming to the point here with regard to Israel. He's got a summation with regard to the conduct of Israel in exactly the same way as he would have it of you and me. And I don't say this in order to make you feel cast down or depressed in spirit, but just to be honest with ourselves and to acknowledge whose we are and whom we serve. And how do we serve God? In what way do we serve him? Not by just putting our hand in our pocket, whether it be in our front pocket or our back pocket, whatever might be the weightiest of money that we might be enabled, as we would say, to give to the Lord. God doesn't want an outward show. He wants a sincere heart. He wants us to come before him, pleading with him for mercy and for grace. But you know, we even have those early children. And every time I read this passage, I think, you know, it's exactly what children would do, but we're the same. Listen to what has been said on a few occasions here. 
God says he makes a comment with regard to Israel. He says to him, Return unto me, and I will return to you, saith the Lord of hosts, in verse 7. But you said, Where shall we return? The implication being that here Israel is feeling offended by God, that he is suggesting for one moment that they have left him, that they have left his, their first love. That's what God is saying, but you know, that's what children sometimes do, and that's what we do. If our parent is angry with us, if our parent says something, you know, what did I do wrong? We cannot see that we've done any wrong, or as I said earlier wrong, we might try to hide the reality of it all. With the man of God, that's what God says to his people. But you say, wherein have we robbed you? Again, it's this conclusion that we have so often of thinking of ourselves about what we ought to think. Now, everybody, everybody wants to be blessed by God. And I'm quite convinced, and especially those who are of the household of faith here this evening, that you come to the house of God not to, as it were, fulfill some kind of outward show, but in essence what you really want more than anything else that you can go out of this place having your soul at least lifted and revived a bit, even if it meant having to do a bit of soul searching at the same time. We always, when we come to the house of God, or when we confront our God, our Creator, Redeemer, in worship, in, in our family worship, in our own individual worship, in our community, we always want to feel good. We always want to feel as though we are satisfied. I just wondered how that Pharisee in the temple felt. What was he really feeling? He had dished out everything he had, he thought he had, by way of acceptance before God. But what was it? It was empty. His life was an empty vessel. But it was very sad, and it is in many ways tragic that people have this view of themselves that everything that I do must be acceptable to God. But then they might admit, oh, well, maybe not everything, but surely I can come to the conclusion that more of the good I do will make me acceptable than to be rejected by the bad things I do. We know, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the only grace that saves us not anything I have done. And that was the case for the children of Israel in the Old Testament. It wasn't fulfilling what God had demanded. Yes, they had to be obedient. That was part of the Old Covenant. They had to live in obedience to God. And that obedience was not expected to be just some outward conformity to certain regulations and rules. Of course, they should have been there. And that should have been natural. It's the same with you and I. If we love the Lord Jesus Christ, if we say that we love him, it is not born out of the result primarily of something that he has done for us, going through a difficult stage in one's life, and the Lord comes, and he helps us through that difficult stage. Again, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ are full of cripples. And I say that guardedly. 
there were many people who had come to Jesus. And through the work and ministry, the miraculous ministry of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, many people were healed. The lame were able to walk again. The blind received their sight. The leper had received healing. All of these things had come upon them. And yes, they were blessed. Of course they were. Just in the same way as you and I, we are blessed by God's provision, God's provision for each and every one of us. For the children of Israel, they were depending upon their own righteous acts and deeds, not on the very act of God and the provision that he has made for them with regard to their deliverance. How easy it was for these people in Christ's time Yes, to follow him. If he fed them with the five loaves and the two small fishes, or fed others with more food, yes, they would keep on following him. But then there was such a sad day came upon many of them. They stopped following him. And do you know why? Because the good that God had done, or Jesus had done for them, would seem in their thinking it was drying up. They weren't really after what Jesus was willing to offer them. What they were after was the sustenance of this life. An easy life, uh, a life, maybe a life healed from diseases of all kinds. But Jesus, it's one of the most poignant phrases in the whole scripture coming from the lips of Jesus. But he had to say to his disciples, in a challenging way, Will you also go away? Now we know how easy it is to go away from the Lord. It doesn't take much. We can slip away from the track and the road that we should be on. We can find ourselves wandering away into this world so very readily. And then consternation would come maybe upon us when all of a sudden we begin to realize we are being challenged. Challenged by the word of God to accept and to acknowledge. Yes, I have robbed God. For these people, God says, when they ask the question, we're in. We don't know anything in the life, these lives of ours that in any way could bring an accusation against us. Let man rob God. Yet you have robbed me in tithes and offerings. It wasn't in the actual tithe. It wasn't in the offering. It was in the way that it was given. And that's always the risk for every one of us. We can do the right thing, but from the wrong motive. And that is not something that is exclusively found amongst the children of Israel. It is found in the Church of Christ in the present age. We do it ourselves, and we only have to find ourselves admitting to it. And of course, one of the consequences of what God is challenging in Israel with the character here is that when you do not follow God in the way that you should, then you are inclined to lose sight of the privileges and the blessings 
that belong to you through the hand of God opened up to you. What does God say to these people? We could go down through the history of Israel and spend a long time going down through this whole sort of um, gully of unbelief and disobedience of the children of Israel. We can look at our own lives as well. But the point is God is getting it over to them. You have robbed me in the way that you have done what I have asked you to do. Well, yes, you give tithes and offerings. As I said at the beginning, that was not the real point that God was making here. It was that their hearts were not right with God. And if your heart and my heart is not right with God at any time, and then you sit back and you ask yourself, why is it that I feel so dry and spiritually deprived? We have to ask ourselves and not blame God. Where are we wrong to? What have we done? There was in any way curtail God's hand of promise and blessing to be stretched out upon us. Each and every one of us has to ask, answer that question ourselves. What does he say? Your words, he says in verse 12, have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against thee? And we do it all the time. We speak against God all the time. It's fine when everything, pardon the expression, is rosy in the garden and everything is going fine for us. But then a providence comes and it's crushing. Yes. Sure there are people here who have felt a crushing providence. One of our ministers that was with in our church he's in another denomination now we wrote a book and the book was based upon his daughter's illness and then eventual death and he called the book A Frowning Providence and many of us can experience a frowning providence of God but we take that frowning providence of God and do we say that no reply that God has not been favourable to us? Far from it. And you and I should know by now that out of many frowning providences, many blessings have come if we accept them and acknowledge them in the right way. <coughs> what is God saying to you and to me then this evening? <coughs> he is saying this. Listen to what he says. He has accused them. And as I said, we could have said a lot more about the accusation against them. He tells them, bring in all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house and room prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. I'm almost tempted to ask you to put up your hands. Who have felt, even on one occasion, or more than one occasion, the windows of heaven opened for you and the blessing of God poured upon you. I often find myself linking this passage considering what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in these great beatitudes that we seek be God. You know, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. All these blessings that God is saying to his people, they are yours. If only you would believe and accept 
that I am God and besides whom there is none else. There is no one else that can provide for you or give to you that which you require this side of eternity. Let me go to these Beatitudes just for a moment or two. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I'm sure you've heard many a preacher talking through these parables and say that they do express a kind of momentous activity in the life of the believer. Starting with that time when you find yourselves exposed with nothing, <coughs> empty, totally empty. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I can cling. The man that is full of poverty of spirit is the one who comes eventually, and I mean that poverty of spirit, is the one who recognizes that there is nothing in and of himself. It's again the whole situation with the, 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 the publican in the temple. God be merciful to me, a sinner. As you step forward in faith, you find each of those steps of which Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes, each one can be identified one after another as you become more aware of God's dealings with you in his providence and his grace. I think it's a marvellous thing that Jesus spoke to the disciples and to those people at that time. You know, he spoke out specifically to the disciples. He wanted them to know that everything they had, this removal of that poor situation in which they found themselves, accepting the necessity of being of a meek and a quiet spirit, the necessity of humility, there's one. There's one that the church, I think, and I say it of myself more than I would say it of anyone else, because how easily it is to be disenfranchised with regard to the grace of humility. All of us stand in a position where we find ourselves lacking in the very thing that would bring a great blessing to us. What was Israel's problem so often? Arrogancy full of pride. And you know, it's a strange providence to in a way that the way that pride reaches up and grabs us by the throat, pardon the expression. But God blessed Israel. And because God blessed Israel, she found herself full of pride. As though she was better than any other people, better than any other race. How many a time did Jesus even when you take the Samaritan woman of this morning, use people of a background that you would think that is strange. The Samaritan woman. The disciples were dumbfounded that he should even be speaking to her. She was, he, they knew they must have known something about it, but that she, he would be speaking to her. But even when you come to that parable, you remember, of the, 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 par the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son is an evident token to mankind, to the household of faith, that there is still hope for those of us who maybe have traversed this world and gone further away from God than we ever should have done. If you are wanting your soul, your heart to be blessed, what are you going to do? 
What are you going to give up? What are you going to get rid of? Everything surely that's going to be an inhibition with regard to the blessings of the Spirit of Christ upon us. This whole passage is looking forward for the children of Israel to the messianic hope. But they seem to be locked in time and probably no more locked in time than you and I can be. We can get locked into our own particular funny ways or strange ways. We become so tied up in knots. Christ has made us free. He has liberated us. Not to be worldly. Not to follow the ways of the world, but to follow the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, come. God says, come. Prove me now. And every single soul here that is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has already proved that sometimes, somehow or other, we constantly need God's proof. And maybe we're looking for it in all different directions. When in actual fact it is right in front of us, it is in the Word, the promise that Jesus has made. I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Even some of these psalms that we have been singing, a reminder to us that God is the protector of his people. Oh yes, having said that, as a church, the Church of Christ, part of the Church of Christ Universal, we can look out upon the sea of unbelief and godlessness, and we can see how the Church of Christ is under great persecution. That is true. And it makes you, you make sometimes your faith to shake. But as good as it not that Jesus prays for us to keep us on an even keel, to keep us from falling headlong, just because circumstances seem to envelop our souls so strongly that we lose sight of what has been done for us. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed, he says, are they that mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's as though Jesus is taking what God has already promised and said, look, lay hold upon all of these things and claim them for yourselves. Has God stopped opening the window of heaven to you as an individual? Do you find yourself in a waste howling wilderness again? Do you find that this journey of the Christian life is becoming a sluggish journey? That there is no more, as it were, vibrancy? Peter had the answer to it, did he not? Peter knew what it was to learn the lesson of having been disobedient to Christ, even to the point of, yes, <coughs> turning his back upon him for a time, denying him. But what did he learn? The tribe of your faith, he said, might be found more precious than gold, will be tried with fire and will be found unto praise and honour at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now whatever Peter was, one thing is sure, he learnt. The lesson of faith and trust, putting our trust in him, who is the altogether lovely one and the Prince of Peace. <coughs> Israel, 
What was the blessing that God was going to pour out upon her? To subdue all his and our enemies? Yes, but not the way that Israel thought. He has now subdued all his and our enemies through the giving of his son, the greatest gift of all. And he has blessed us and he has opened the window of heaven with that blessing of sending redemption through Jesus. It can become a cliche. And it's dangerous to use text just as a cliche. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is God asking of us, of you and me? <coughs> to notice that heaven's windows are already open and the blessings are flowing down timelessly day by day and there is not enough room of all those blessings to be received by any one of us but you know what happens we can sometimes miss them I know I had a discussion with the minister's son who's a very good friend of mine in Edinburgh and he said to me he says there's no such thing as a believer losing a blessing you could argue with that one all night, but I'm not going to do that here. And I think there's a truth in what he said. But I think we can lose the benefits of the blessing. It's not that the blessings are not there, they're all around us. The God's gift from heaven and the person of Jesus Christ, indwelling in the believer, what a blessing to think that the Spirit of Christ is in each and every one of us as believers. And if there is, if we cannot see that as probably one of the greatest blessings of all, then there is something far wrong. The Spirit is already there. The Spirit is working in His people. And yes, there are times when we have fallen short of the glory of God. Thanks be to God, who has given us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Pharisee in the temple, he can say as much as he likes. It's going to get him nowhere nearer heaven. He's not going to be blessed at all, as long as he takes the route that he is taking. But where he would be blessed is if he accepted himself for what he is before a thrice holy God and called upon God and said to him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. How many of us are beyond that principle. None of us. Nobody is beyond that. Without Christ, we have nothing. Paul says in Ephesians, he says this, You, he said, who were dead in trespasses and sins, have been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. There's your blessing. There's the blessing that came through the open window of the windows of heaven, poured upon the children of men, and we are sustained by that continually. So, yes, question. Question yourselves occasionally, yes, regularly, about your relationship to God. But ask God <coughs> sincerely, in what area of my life have I wronged you? Don't say, wherein have I robbed you? 
knowledge that all of us come short of the glory of God. But remember this, that what God is doing here to the children of Israel, and with this I'm going to conclude, what God is doing here for the children of Israel is to lay out that promise of the open windows of heaven to be poured upon Israel and to all who by faith would come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who by faith would come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that would be a fellowship and excellence of people of all generations coming together. Yes. And a book of remembrance written about us. What will the remembrance be? At the end of the day, Jesus saying, I depart from me, I never knew you. <coughs> Enter in to the joy thy rest. That's what we have to look forward to. That's the fulfillment of God's great blessing to sinners such as you and me. <coughs> well, we'll leave it there this evening. Shall we pray? O oh Lord, our gracious God, we do thank Thee for the testimony of Thy Word that is the reminder to us of the need that we have to close in with Christ day by day. We acknowledge with shamefacedness our paltry spirit, our paltry obedience. Help us, we pray Thee, energize us, lift upon us the light of Thy countenance. Do Thou be gracious to us, we pray Thee, let the word of Christ dwell in us in all wisdom. Forgive us, we pray thee, for our slothfulness, our carelessness, our indifference, and help us to submit ourselves humbly and meekly and to say, Who is a God like unto thee? Go before us then, forgiving all offence and anything that we have said, anything that we have thought or done, and accept of us in the beloved. Amen. I'm going to conclude by singing in Psalm 65, in the same Psalms version, and we're going to sing verses 9 to verse 13. Page 82. You tend the land and water it, you make it rich and good. As you ordained, your streams are full to give the people food. You drench the fallows of the land, you level off the ground. You soften it with showers of rain and make its crops abound. You crown the year with fruitfulness, your harvests overflow. The grassland flourishes again, the hills with gladness glow. The pastures green with flocks are clothed, the meadows covering, the valleys deck themselves with corn, they shout for joy and sing, and so on. So often this the case, is it not, that even the creation itself seems to give more honour and glory to God than we do. Psalm 65, verse 9, you tend the land and water it. <coughs>
the love of God the Father, the fellowship and the comfort of the Holy Spirit rest upon and remain with you and with all the Israel of God, both now and always. Amen. <laughs>